can take a copy of that word and turn to Mark chapter 9. Back in um, chapter 34, where it says, Let anyone who would come after me 
What does it say? To deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And last week we talked about the cost of discipleship and the sacrifice that it takes to put your faith in Christ. Now, from our perspective, in 2023, we have a full view of the gospel. We know the resurrection comes. We know the whole of eternal life. We have the full counsel of God. We have the full story. But the original listeners, which was up in their shoes, it would have been so easy to hear this call to discipleship from Jesus Christ and have the question pop into your mind. Is this worth it? Denying myself? Taking up my cross? Is this going to pay off? And so, so right on the heels of that costly call to discipleship, chapter 8, that we say last week, we have this prophecy, this stunning promise in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Look at it. It says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it is come with power. First of all, I want to point out the way Jesus introduces an important topic. Literally, the Greek is the word amen. Truly, I say to you. Notice that prophets normally say, thus says the Lord, right? That's what we hear. Thus says the Lord. But Jesus Christ, the great prophet of God, he does say, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, I say to you. You see the distinction there? Jesus is exalted. Among the prophets. Second of all, I want you to notice that Jesus is prophesying among this group of people. Remember in 834, it says the crowd, he calls the crowd to him, the disciples, and there's this crowd of people. And what he prophesies, what he promises is that there are certain people in that crowd, historically, that were going to not die until they see the kingdom of God come in power. He says specifically, is until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. They're going to witness that, they're going to taste that before they taste it. This verse, maybe it's done this to you, it's really tripping people up because it sounds like Jesus is saying some people are going to see me return before they die and you know, 2,000 years later, doesn't see my return. What's going on here? Was Jesus wrong in his prediction? No. Uh, our tape, our interpretation is wrong. And that's the position you hold every time you see something. This is wrong to me. You're the wrong one. Not God's word. So context is important here. But the context shows what Jesus was prophesying about. Because immediately after Jesus said, hey, some of you guys are going to taste the king, or going to see the king God in the tower of the dead. And then immediately after that prophecy, what happens? This transfiguration where some of them, Peter, James, and John, witness the glory of Christ, witness the king God in the tower. This is the exact same contextual flow that happens in Matthew um, chapter 16, 28 through 17, 1, and Luke 9, 27 through 28. Jesus promises that some people are going to see the kingdom of God before they take death. And in every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, immediately what happens is Peter, James, and John see the kingdom of God come before they die in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. Point number two, Revelation. So in verse two, we see after six days. So he says that, and then Mark links his account with that. Says, okay, six days later, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus go on high. 
pretty all tight, really get up to the top of the mountain, and you're blown away by the amazing view of nature, but Peter, James, and John see something even more amazing. Notice here in verse 2, it says, And he was transfigured for the Odd word. You probably haven't used the word transfigured this week. I guess. In Greek, it's a similar word to metamorphosis. Same word, Romans 12:2, where it says, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind." So what it means here is that Jesus was changed. He was transformed. He was transfigured. He went this metamorphosis right before them. And in what way? Look at verse 3. It says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could believe to this. So in verse 2 and verse 3, by, we know that this isn't just His clothes that are being transfigured, because in verse 2 it says, He was transfigured. Uh, what's happening here is His entire body and person was transformed into this glorious white light. Think of a white, white wedding dress that's so incredibly white and pure, you know, almost all together, it's all right. But Mark makes clear that this whiteness was so intense that it could not be produced by human effort. This was so bright, it was so white that no human could pull off. This was not natural, obviously, I mean, the reason that it's not natural, this is so obviously, clearly, supernatural. This was the glory of God being revealed. And let's be clear, in this moment, in the moment of the transfiguration, Jesus Christ is not becoming something new. Jesus is, in this event, revealing what he has eternally been. This is like what been the most amazing thing that anyone has literally ever seen. Jesus had been walking and talking and eating with the disciples just like a normal man walking around, just like we walk around. But while Jesus had a real human nature, he really was a man. Jesus was much more than that. He was God in the flesh. And in the transfiguration, in this event, Jesus in a sense pulls back the curtain of reality of Peter, James, and John so they can truly see the glory of Christ, so they can see his divine nature, so they can see who they've been walking and talking and eating with all along. So Jesus starts literally glowing with the glory of God, and things get even crazier than that in verse 4 through 6. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they, and they were talking, talking with Jesus. Jesus. So, first, Elijah and Moses show up. If you don't know your Bible very well, these are two of the most biggest, most important figures in Old Testament history. And if you don't know your Bible well, the thing to know is that Moses and Elijah have been gone for a long time. Okay, these, these guys did die yesterday, okay, they've been gone for years and years and years, and all of a sudden, they show up on this mountain with Jesus in his glory. What's going on here? Why are they back? Two prophecies I want to point out. Number one, in Deuteronomy 18.50, we just talked about this at the BGU on Wednesday. Moses prophesied, this is Moses speaking, Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God 
will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses gives a prophecy that a prophet like him would arise and that people must listen to him. Now, Moses reappears on the mountain with Jesus Christ. What does the voice from heaven say? In verse 7, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 23, Peter confirms that this prophecy was about Jesus Christ. So Moses in Deuteronomy says, hey, the prophet's going to come. You need to listen to him. God's going to raise a prophet like me. And here Moses reappears with this prophet on the top of Mount Transfiguration with the voice from heaven saying, listen to him. Isn't it amazing? I'm not sure. Hey, Proverbs uh, number 2, I'm going to count. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. These are the very last words of the Old Testament. So if you turn to Malachi, uh, you turn to the next page, it blanks in the New Testament. Okay? So the last words of the Old Testament, I'm reading it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses. There's Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at work for all Israel. Behold, I sent you Elijah, the prophet, but before the great cross day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest someone come strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, the last passage in the Old Testament is the only passage in the Old Testament where Moses and Elijah show up together. Okay, and what ends up is like, hey, listen to Moses, and Elijah is going to come back right before the great awesome day of the Lord. And this is why Jewish people had the expectation that before the Messiah would come, before the great awesome day of the Lord, which that just means like, well, we think of the last day of Jesus coming back, right? This great awesome day of the Lord. What's going to happen right before that is Elijah will come back. We'll talk about that more at the next point. So, on this mountain, Appearing with Jesus, shining in his glory, is Moses and Elijah, two great Old Testament prophets, both in their own ways pointing to certain Old Testament expectations and prophecies, and in, 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 in a sense symbolizing the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So I believe this, and it shows us that Jesus Christ in his shining glory is the fulfillment the completion and the continuation of the Old Testament. What Jesus was doing in the Old Testament, what God was doing in the Old Testament, Jesus is continuing it. Jesus is fulfilling it. Jesus is completing it. So let's look at Peter's response. Verse 5. Where it says, Rabbi, I stood up here here, let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They okay, so you gotta love Peter, right? Not knowing what to say never stopped Peter from saying something. Uh, he, he didn't know what to say, but something's gonna come out of his mouth. What is it, Rabbi? It's good that we're here. Let's make three tests one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So clearly, the text we see, Moses, I mean, Peter didn't know what to say. But let's ask, what was Peter trying to say? It's kind of interesting. Jesus is shining this glory. Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter says, how about pretense? 
What, what, what do you think? First, the Lord God in the Old Testament was associated with tabernacles. So here, in witnessing God's glory in the Transfigure Project, maybe thinking it's time to build some tabernacles. God's glory is here. Second, the second option is. Some believe that Peter was just doing whatever he possibly could to keep this moment going. Like he didn't want this moment to end. So let's get some tents set up. Let's get some houses. Let's like Jesus shining, Moses here, Elijah here. Like let's keep the party going. Which is what people say. Third, some people think that Peter was just. You just, just had to do something in the moment. Does that make sense? Like, like this amazing thing's happening. Peter's thinking, I gotta do something. What can I offer? Let, Let me build some tents. I, I kind of think about you know, that story of Mary and Martha, where Martha's just so busy and she's got to serve, she's got to make something happen. I think I kind of see Peter in that. Um, he's witnessing the craziest thing you've ever seen in his life. He's terrified of the passages in verse 6. And so he's just trying to be helpful. And obviously, kind of a stupid process. Nevertheless, the failure of Peter is in the fact that he is offering up three tents. This proposal suggests to him that he is dealing with three equals. He sees on this mountain three great prophets of God. He sees Elijah. He sees Jesus. He sees Moses. And maybe he even thinks it's a great honor to include Jesus in this group that says, Let me build three tents. But once more, Jesus and Peter's vision of Christ is about to get a little bit clearer. Jesus Christ is not equal with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is superior to Moses and Elijah. Jesus is exalted over Moses and Elijah and everybody else. Jesus is more important than the most important figures in Old Testament history. And we see that what happens next. Verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And as we just said throughout the Old Testament, a cloud like this would be a symbol of God's presence and glory. You see in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, when God's presence fills Solomon's temple. You also see it in Exodus 24, 15 through 18. Listen to this word from Exodus 24. It says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain inside of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Do you see? The similarity between our passage today and Exodus 24 15. Wait. They're both up on the mountain. And the cloud comes to the boat. The glory of the Lord is seen. Notice it says that the cloud covered it six days. Six days. And in Mark 9, verse 2, Mark makes this point to say, and after six days, which Mark doesn't really talk like that, that specific usage of time is interesting. 
normally it's immediately, something like that. But after six days, he points out, um, a voice comes out of the cloud, you know, speaking, and then the other obvious connection is Moses calling them out. So in Exodus 24, the old covenant was being confirmed, and in Mark chapter 9, we are in the process of the new covenant being confirmed, which we can confirm as we see in Mark chapter 14 by the blood of the Son of God. Now what does this voice say out of the cloud? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. So God makes an assertion, theological fact, this is my beloved Son. And then the voice makes a command, gives a command, listen to Him. So assertion and the command. So first the assertion this is very similar to the language we saw, if you remember, as Jesus baptism, Mark chapter 1, verse 11, he says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The main difference is, in Mark 1, the Father is speaking to the Son. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. While in Mark 9, the Father is speaking to Peter, James, and John, where he says, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. Father wants to be very clear that Jesus is not merely a man. Jesus is not merely a prophet. He is not just simply a Messiah who is going to establish an earthly kingdom. No, he is the beloved Son of God. He is not a normal man. He is the God man. And here we see just a, a little glimpse of the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God who is three persons. And God the Father loves God the Son. You see, that doesn't just say, this is my son, but this is my beloved son. The father is saying, I love Jesus Christ. I love this son. It just shows just a picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, who throughout, throughout all of eternity has been in a loving relationship. John 17, 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. How amazing that the Father and the Son have loved each other, do love each other, will always love each other, and that the, the foundation of this entire universe, all creation, is the love of God. Then we see the command was in him. That's pretty simple, right? That doesn't require a lot of theological explanation. God says, hey, that's my son. You need to listen to him. Obey him. Hear him. God the Father, in this moment, is giving undeniable proof that Jesus was God's son. And with that comes the responsibility to listen to God's son. Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet of God, who tells the truth, who reveals God, and ultimately must be obeyed. This has implications on today. We'll talk about those implications later. But consider in the context of Mark how this is the clearest possible stamp of approval on Jesus' plain teaching of his necessary death and resurrection. Chapter 8. Uh, in verse 31, you know, Jesus says, Hey, his son of is going to be killed. Rise again. Peter rebukes him. There's all this stuff going on. Jesus says, Hey, you're going to have to take up the cross and follow me. Uh, we'll see here in just a second in Mark chapter 9, even there's this pushback on Jesus' doctrine of the necessity of death. But 
God the Father comes in and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. What he says is true. What he says uh, must be heard and believed. And after this happens, verse 8, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. God did not exalt Moses in this moment. God did not exalt Elijah in this moment. God did not exalt Peter, James, and John in this moment. God exalted Jesus only. Moses and Elijah are some of the biggest and most important figures in the history of the world, but they just fade into the background when it comes to the glory of Jesus Christ. They are supporting actors in the scene, simply shoved to pass the glory of Christ. So we see his pattern. Jesus has no peers. He has no rivals. He has no equals. It's Jesus only. May it be in this church that we do the same way. Only Jesus. Okay, so the next point, the clarification. Verse 9, 13. Pretty incredible experience, huh? I mean, could you imagine? This would be one of those pictures just don't do it justice kind of situation. Uh, you had to be there. My people are going to be there. It's an experience of a lifetime. So, as we're coming down from the height, imagine how difficult it would be to hear this command of Jesus Christ in verse 9. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen. What you just witnessed, you just saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And Elijah and Moses, I mean, that's the perfect story to tell. And Jesus says, you can't tell it. Now, we know Jesus has his reasons to keep things under wraps for the time being. We've talked about that over and over again. But here in verse 9, this is the first instance in the Gospel of Mark where we see a expiration date on the command. We see a time limit. This is not a command that's going to go on forever. But he says, tell no one until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So the disciples are forbidden to tell anyone about the transfiguration until the resurrection. But after that, when after the resurrection, this command expires, and then they've got the green light to tell everyone that they see. That's why we have this account in the Gospels of the green light of the resurrection, which we find implication. We have the green light to tell everyone about the glory of Christ. Now, also legally. Peter, James, and John obeyed Jesus' command. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves. That's pretty impressive for Peter, James, and John. But I think the reason why is the command didn't really stand out to them as much as Jesus' prophecy of his future resurrection in verse 10. Where it says, They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they heard Jesus say the words, but they didn't really understand what, what he meant by it. It was a complete mystery to them. I know this seems silly to us, because how obvious it is, okay, he's going to die, he's going to rise from the dead, that makes sense. But that's because we're so familiar with the resurrection. You hear about the resurrection every single week. But for Peter, James, and John, this is a completely new concept. And what's, what's really upsetting about it for Peter, James, and John is for Jesus to rise from the dead, what does that mean? Because Jesus is going to die. And they don't want Jesus to die. And it's really hard to believe that Jesus is going to die after they just witnessed this incredible glory. 
How could that be God? You would have to think. So they asked Jesus a question, verse 11. They asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? This is sort of a rebuttal to Jesus' teaching on his future death. So the question is, you said that you've got to die and rise again, but the scribes say that Elijah comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And we just saw Elijah. Remember, they just saw Elijah. And the prophecy was, Elijah comes, it's over. The great and awesome day of the Lord's here. So why are you talking about the death and resurrection again? Isn't it hot for everything to be over? Jesus responds, by affirming that the scribes were correct in their interpretation of Malachi 4.5. Elijah, he says this, uh, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But where they were wrong in their interpretation is the identification of Elijah. The, the correct identification of Elijah was not the appearance of Elijah on Mount Transfiguration, but instead, this prophecy, Malachi 4-5, was fulfilled through the ministry of John the Baptist. So verse 13, Jesus says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So Jesus' response is, hey, it's right, right. Elijah does come before the great awesome day of the Lord, but he came already, and he was killed, he was beheaded by Herod, as we saw in Mark chapter 6. And then he goes from there, okay, so yeah, Elijah came, he was killed, uh, they, they cut off his head, and the same thing is going to happen to Messiah, and that's his point. So they tried to rebut this whole death and Messiah thing, and he said, no, Elijah got killed, and so will the Christ. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? He's treated with contempt. Peter, James, John got to witness something incredible. Could you imagine being there on that mountain? They got a glimpse of the glory of Christ. But the glory of Christ will not prevent the mission of the Christ, which is to die and place sinners and rise again after victory over sin, death, and hell. Great. What I want to point out this morning is the glory of Christ doesn't prevent the mission of Christ. Instead, the glory of Christ is what makes the mission of Christ possible. Here's what I mean by that. In light of the transfiguration, as we see in this text, where the glory of Christ was revealed so clearly, do you see the incredible worth of the death of the Son of God on the cross? Do you see the infinite value of His blood in light of what we see in the Transfiguration? If Moses died on that cross, there would be no atonement for your sin. Listen, if Elijah died on that cross, you would still be going to hell. If any other man attempted to be your substitute, you would have no substitute. But the eternal Son of God Holy, innocent, unsaved, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, if that man dies in the place, if the glory of God that we see in the transfiguration pours out his blood for you, your sins can be atoned for. You can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. You can have an eternal hope because the glory of 
Christ makes the death of the cross so incredibly valuable and powerful, so powerful, so valuable that it can personally change your life. No other dead, no other man could do that except the glorious Christ, Jesus only. Glory of Christ makes the mission of Christ possible. Okay, two takeaways at the end of this sermon. Number one, you should listen to Jesus. We have the voice of God coming from the clouds testifying to us this morning. Listen to Him. The story shows us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the perfect prophet who so gloriously tells us the truth. Hebrews 1. 1 through 3 says, Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty. That's the picture we see in the transfiguration, the radiance of the glory of God. And what's the first point of fact is that God spoke to Jesus Christ to us. So we need to listen to Jesus. Jesus reveals to us who God is. That's what John 1.18 says. Um, he has made him known. Jesus reveals to us who we are. Jesus reveals to us the only way we can be saved. Jesus reveals to us how we ought to live after we have put our faith in him. So listen to him. Jesus Christ is king and Lord. He's the king of his church. He has all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. He has all wisdom and knowledge. So in all of our decisions and all of our actions and all of our opinions, we need to listen to Jesus Christ. So let's ask, what area of your life are you not listening to Jesus? Maybe it's how you use your phone. Maybe it's in your relationships, in your work, in your politics, in your theology. But the Father demands obedience to the Son in every aspect of our lives. There's no exception. I mean, Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after him. That's a complete allegiance and sacrifice to follow after him. And now we have a voice coming out from heaven saying, this is my Son, listen to him. With those two things in mind, what part of your life do you think is off limits to Jesus Christ's worship? I mean, God, the Father, is saying, listen to Him. That should affect every single aspect of our lives with no exceptions. When it comes to this idea of listening to Jesus, consider Peter's reflection on the transfiguration in 2 Peter chapter 1. We read this um, earlier, where it says, For we do not, we do not follow cleverly devised myths, we may know to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is him talking about it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That's an amazing experience, right? And you might love to be there. Look at this next, verse 19. And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the little man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What I want to point out here in this passage is that Peter goes from his experience of being an eyewitness to the glory of Christ, and then he shifts so quickly to this, what he says is a prophetic word from fully confirmed. He goes from his experience on the mountain to the, to the establishment, to the sure testimony of Scripture. And he says, okay, I experienced this, but here's what you need to pay attention to. You need to pay attention to the Word of God that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. You see that? So if you long to have an experience of glory, but if you want to see the glory of Christ like Peter did on the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe that Peter is telling us here, pay attention to the Word of God. Look at the glory of Christ in the Word. You should listen to Jesus. Okay. Second takeaway, you should be impressed with Jesus. Are you impressed with Jesus? It's okay to be impressed with Moses. It's okay to be impressed by Elijah. There are so many things worthwhile to think about and talk about. I'm not hating on any of them. But in the end, when everything passes away, it's Jesus only. What we see in the story is what we can see in our lives. Jesus Christ far surpasses anything else and ultimately should be our greatest love. Think about Philippians 3a, Paul's word, and me. I count everything in loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Does that sound familiar to Deny yourself, take up your cross, fall out for me. Paul says, I count everything as rubbish, like a gain Christ. Oh, so in light of the glory of Christ, be so impressed with him that you so easily forsake everything else, grab a hold of Christ in faith. Is that how you feel about Jesus? Are you impressed with him? Are you blown away by his surpassing worth and glory as your creator, as your redeemer, as your mediator? As your Lord, I pray you do. And we have the promise that if you love Christ's glory now, through seeing Him in His Word, that's proof that you will see Christ's glory soon with resurrected eyes. Is that not good news? That you will see this glory. This isn't just a historical um, occurrence that happened once, but you, Christian, you follower of Christ, you, the man or woman who have denied themselves, taken up the cross to fall after Jesus, you will see Christ resurrected eyes. That's what 1 Peter 1 8 and 9 says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with the glory of attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And that salvation of your soul will be witnessed in the glory of Christ for all eternity, forever and ever. That's our hope and promise this morning. If you aren't impressed with Christ's glory, if the thought of beholding the glory of Christ for all eternity, Force you. If you really don't see what's so special about Jesus Christ, I want to point out this quote from John Owen where he says, Music cannot please dead man, nor can beautiful colors impress a blind man. 
A fish would not thank you for taking it out of the sea and putting it on dry land under the blazing sun. Neither would an unregenerate sinner welcome the thought of living forever in the blazing glory of Christ. In other words, not loving Christ, not having a desire for His glory, not being blown away by who He is, may be proof that you're not born again. As we close, I want to just consider the blazing glory of Christ seen in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's Jesus only. I pray. Holy Spirit will lead you to a true sight of the blazing glory of Christ found so clearly in His Word, and that you love Him, worship Him, and listen to Him. And if you don't, I invite you to repent quickly in Jesus. As we sing, there will be people on both corners here to talk to you, talk to somebody, or pray. I encourage you to do that. They'll be hanging out in the service as well. Let's pray as we respond to God's Word. Jesus, lead us to be impressed with your glory. Lead us to a true sight of who you are as our creator, as our redeemer, as our mediator, as our Lord. Don't let us be bored with Jesus. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see who you are. <coughs> Thank you for your word. Help us respond. Apply this word to our lives. Thrill our hearts with Bless the Lord this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen.